In March of 2020, Oklahoma legislature passed Ida's law to make it easier for law enforcement to investigate the cases of missing and murdered indigenous people. This month, we're going to cover four of those cases. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to the show in this month's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women episode. These episodes usually include a little tribal or historical information, and Oklahoma is actually a place that a lot of Americans think of when we're talking about tribal land. After Alaska, it has the highest percentage of indigenous citizens. Obviously, the land was home to tribes before colonization. The Osage, Caddo, Kiowa, Comanche, and Wichita all lived in what is present-day Oklahoma. But now there are nearly 40 federally recognized tribes in Oklahoma. The present-day state boundaries used to have five tribes, and now it has over three dozen. By comparison, Oklahoma shares large borders with Kansas, which has five federally recognized tribes, Texas, which has three, and Arkansas, which has zero. So how did Oklahoma end up with this large number of tribes and the surrounding states with much, much fewer? Those in the U.S. and maybe some of you outside will know about the Trail of Tears, which is when 15,000 Cherokee people were forced to give up their lands and were relocated to an area in Oklahoma. Due to disease, hunger, and sheer exhaustion from the march, more than 4,000 died. The Trail of Tears began in 1838 as part of the Indian removal policy, but 1838 wasn't the start of relocating tribes to west of the Mississippi River and specifically to Oklahoma. This began as early as 1814, when Andrew Jackson began negotiating treaties with tribes. The expanding United States wanted some desirable areas in the southeast of the country. These were lands held by indigenous tribes. So in exchange for these lands, the tribal leaders were promised land a little farther west. Some tribal leaders agreed to this not because they wanted to trade their ancestral lands away, but because what real choice did they have? They knew what would happen if they said no. So to keep the peace and to retain some ownership of land, they signed these treaties. This treaty scheme went on for a little under a decade before a Supreme Court ruling came down in 1823 that said, in a word, never mind. Native Americans were not permitted to own a land in the United States, period. This meant that in order for the tribes to own any land, they would have to move even farther west, outside the most western U.S. border. And that border, if anyone remembers from history class, kept moving farther west. Some tribes in the southeast United States moved when the Supreme Court ruling came down. It was a quote-unquote voluntary move. The only other option was to stay and resist, which some attempted. Then, seven years after the Supreme Court ruling, came the Indian Removal Act. 
This act was passed by Congress, and it gave the U.S. the right to set up land west of the Mississippi for tribes. The tribes that resisted moving there were moved by force. And in 1834, the Indian Territory was established, which was the eastern part of what is present-day Oklahoma. These things combined led to the Trail of Tears and other forced removals. By the 1890s, more than 60 tribes had moved to the Indian Territory. The Trail of Tears is what we learned about in school, but it was a snapshot of a larger, decades-long process. And the tribes were not only driven from the east. Tribes from Kansas and Missouri, which both sit just north of Oklahoma, were forced south. Missouri has no federally recognized tribes in the state because of this. So what happened to Indian Territory? Well, the same thing that happened to every other promise made to the indigenous people of America. The government changed its mind and wanted the land, so they took it away. By the early 1900s, the Indian Territory, or what was left of it after settlers snatched up some land, was parceled out to individuals rather than tribes. This was a necessary step for Oklahoma to gain statehood. All tribal governments had to be dissolved. Once this occurred, Oklahoma was then admitted into the Union. Oklahoma is a state because the U.S. government signed a few treaties and then made a law that allowed them to break them. Except they forgot about one of the treaties. So this may sound like a lot of old-timey history to you, but believe it or not, Indian Territory came back up very recently. In 1997, Jim C. McGirt was convicted of sex crimes. Jim C. is an enrolled member of the Seminole Creek tribe, and the crimes happened in the part of Oklahoma that used to be Indian Territory. He was tried, convicted, and given a life sentence by the state of Oklahoma. As we learned in previous cases like the Ashland Mike case, any major violent crime that occurs on a reservation is the jurisdiction of the federal government, not the state. So Jim C. appealed based on this being a jurisdictional issue. He dusted off the 1833 treaty between the U.S. government and the Creek Nation that set that particular piece of land aside for the tribe. The treaty called this land a permanent home to the whole Creek Nation of Indians and said that they could stay there as long as they should exist as a nation and continue to occupy the land given to them. And the Muscogee Creek Nation has persisted in spite of the U.S. government, and they have continuously occupied that land. So the argument was that the treaty, though largely ignored over the last 100 years, still stood. Jim C. was saying that this entire section of Indian Territory, which is a large chunk of the state of Oklahoma, was actually still a reservation, and therefore the state had no right to try him for his crimes. And he won. In July 2020, so just this year, in a 5-4 to four decision, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed that Oklahoma lacked the jurisdiction to try Jim C. 
The majority opinion basically said that Congress has never officially revoked this order, and so the court was going to hold the government to its word. And holding the government to its word is such a novel concept in this situation that there was a lot of discussion about what was actually going to happen next. Like, what did this mean, broadly speaking? A meme started going around showing a new map of Oklahoma that cut off Indian territory, and it was tongue-in-cheek. We know that Oklahoma and other states exist with reservations within their boundaries, but it will be interesting to see what happens when this very large part of Oklahoma that has not been operating as a reservation starts being recognized as such. So with a long and rich and complicated history of indigenous tribes and the colonizing government in Oklahoma, you would hope that they would have been one of the first to deal with the issues of missing and murdered indigenous women. But of course, that is not how it ever goes. In March of 2020, this year, the state finally passed Ida's law. It is named for 29-year-old Ida Beard, a member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. She went missing in 2015. A listener named Ginny recommended I cover Ida's case, so thank you for sending that over. And I have had it in the back of my mind to include this year in this series. And then I saw how little information there was out there on it, and I knew it would fit better into one of these episodes where I cover a few cases. On June 30th, 2015, Ida Beard hugged her mother goodbye and then left to walk with friends to a house that was just a few blocks away. At first, when Ida didn't come home, her family assumed she was just hanging out with friends and having fun. But soon enough, they worried because Ida hadn't even called to check in, so they reported her missing. And that's just about all there is on Ida's case. Some reports say that Ida was walking home when she went missing, which makes me think her friends must have said she left wherever they were. But I'm assuming that because it's not been spelled out. In five years, more information has simply not been released, but if you do know anything about Ida's disappearance, you can call the El Reno Police Department at 405-262-2121. Our next case is going to be just about as short as Ida's because, again, not a lot of information out there. Though I do have two longer ones that I will include in this episode after. But we will get to those after a short ad break. As always, ad revenue from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women series will be donated. BetterHelp is back again as a sponsor, here to help you assess your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Remember, this is not self-help. This is professional counseling, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours in a safe and private online environment. It is absolutely so convenient, and I find that I like that it doesn't take up such a huge chunk of my day. I don't have to drive there. I don't have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. You can have weekly video or phone sessions and also get timely and thoughtful responses whenever you send a message to your counselor. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and they offer financial aid. And another benefit is they have a broad range of expertise, 
which may not be available locally where you are. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, sleeping, trauma, LGBTQ matters, self-esteem, and anything you share with them is confidential, just like in a traditional setting. It is convenient, it is professional, it's affordable, and you can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor, betterhelp.com slash crimelines. Join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crimelines. This next case is the murder of Susie Wapakichi. Her tribal information is not published anywhere that I could find, but I have learned that Wapakichi is often a Kickapoo surname, and the Kickapoo tribe of Oklahoma is in the Oklahoma City area, which is where this case takes place. My researcher Annie helped with this case and tried to locate family to speak with, but that was not successful. The longest article either of us could find is fewer than 100 words. But we wanted to include this case because all unsolved murders deserve to have some light shed on them. Someone might know something. What we know from the scant reporting is that 34-year-old Susie Wapakichi was driving with 30-year-old Ray Dean Johnson on January 22, 2014. They were on the southwest side of Oklahoma City when someone pulled alongside their car and opened fire. Both Ray and Susie were hit. Ray was not severely injured, but Susie was. Ray headed straight for the hospital, which was about four miles away. Susie was alive when they arrived, but she did later die of her injuries. Ray was treated and released. The thing that really stands out in the reporting of this case is that the only picture used of Susie is clearly a mugshot. And the truth is that how the media presents a victim matters in how much the public pays attention to the case. Many people have an explicit bias against people who break the law and even more have an implicit bias, one they're not even fully aware they have. Obviously, Susie had to have been arrested or they wouldn't have a mugshot to use, but these were all minor infractions, nothing major. And you might think, well, maybe that was the only picture they had to use, but that is not true. The Justice for Native Women website uses a different picture, so we do know it is available to the media. Using public records, what Annie has been able to piece together about Susie's life was that she was a mother. She had been married to a man named Michael Ramirez. In October 2003, she filed for an order of protection from him, but they reconciled and married in October 2004. In 2008, he filed for divorce, but the case was dismissed when there was no movement in the case. We don't know if this is because they reconciled or because they just didn't follow through with the paperwork. It is not clear their status when Susie was murdered or if he is considered a person of interest in this case. If you have any information regarding the murder of Susie Wapakichi, you can call the Oklahoma City Police Department 
at 405-297-1000. Okay, so now on to our two longer cases, which are also both from the Oklahoma City area. On June 22, 2000, a man was mowing his lawn in southeast Oklahoma City. Though he technically had an OKC address, this area really is on the far reaches of the city limits, and it's in a somewhat rural area near Lake Draper. While mowing, this man found a skull, and it was small enough that he believed it belonged to a child. He called the police, who eventually brought in a team to search and locate the rest of the remains. West of where the skull was found, over 25 acres of land, most of the rest of the skeletal remains were found. Due to scattering, some couldn't be recovered. But the police had what is the most important part in identifying a skeleton, which is the skull. The second adult molars had emerged, or at least had begun to, but the wisdom teeth had not, which put the age around 13 to 17 years old. They were also able to determine the remains were of a girl. The teenager was petite and had shoulder length, curly brown hair, and she was believed to be mixed race. She was possibly Caucasian and Native American, or she was Hispanic. As for clothing, carpenter-style Wrangler jeans were found with the cuffs rolled up, a white sports bra was found, and a white sleeveless shirt. Socks were found, but no shoes and no underwear. But again, things were scattered, so just because they weren't found doesn't necessarily mean they hadn't been there at one point. The date of death was estimated to be two months to 12 months in the past. So we're talking anytime from June 1999 to March or April 2000. The cause of death could not be determined, but the death was considered a homicide. There were no matches to missing persons cases, so investigators hoped a composite would help. In November 2000, they sent photographs of the composite clay model out to the media and to the local schools, hoping that someone would recognize her. After no leads in October 2002, so two years later, they sent it out again, both to the media and then a few months later to the schools. And around the time they sent the picture to the schools for the second time, the state sent a sample of the remains to the University of North Texas for DNA testing. At the time, the Oklahoma State Medical Examiner had no in-house services in this regard. They had no forensic anthropologists, and they didn't have the ability to process DNA. Everything had to be sent out, and that delayed getting results. Another thing was that without experts in the building, they didn't know if the sample they sent for testing would even be good enough, and in this case, it was not. There wasn't enough bone marrow to test with the technology they had at the time. In 2014, the Facebook page Never Forget Me, which focuses on missing and unidentified persons, wrote, We know she was somebody's child, and somewhere out there, there should be somebody who loved her, and there should be somebody who is looking for her. She was only a child, and surely her short existence mattered 
to someone. And they were 100% right. Someone was looking for her and had been since she first went missing. In early May 2000, 16-year-old Regina Marie Curtis, a member of the Cheyenne and Arapahoe Tribal Nations, was reported missing to the Oklahoma State Police, and they considered her a runaway. It's not clear when she was last seen or if it was just assumed that she ran away. Regina was born in Clinton, Oklahoma, which is about an hour to an hour and a half west of Oklahoma City. She grew up in and around Oklahoma City. In most ways, Regina was a typical teenager. She liked to listen to music and hang out with her friends. She loved to play with her nieces and nephews. She was one of eight children, so Regina had plenty of family to spend time with. As long as she could make everyone laugh, Regina was happy in her big family. So when Regina went missing in 2000 and didn't make contact again, the family was very concerned. Even if Regina had run away initially, they didn't believe she was staying away voluntarily. The family would do media interviews from time to time to get word out, and they stayed in touch with the investigators. Twice, remains were found in Oklahoma, and the family worked with the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations to see if they were Regina's. But both times, the DNA ruled this out. In 2002, Regina's mother died, and as often happens, it looks like her siblings picked up the torch and kept Regina's case alive. In August 2006, DNA from the Curtis family was entered into the national database to search for any possible matches to a Jane Doe, and nothing came back. But back to that Jane Doe case we opened with, the investigators had a new composite made sometime around 2010, and they again released it to the media. Multiple members of the Curtis family saw this and called in saying that they thought this could be Regina. The age, race, stature, hair color, timing, and location all matched. But could it be possible that Regina was found less than two months after she went missing and no one made the connection between her and the Jane Doe's remains? And yes, it was possible because that's exactly what happened. At the time these tips came in from the family, there was already a request in place for another attempt at doing a DNA analysis on Jane Doe. But labs are really busy, and active and open investigations, as we know, often take priority. In 2015, the results from trying to compare the DNA from the Curtis family to the Jane Doe was determined inconclusive because the Jane Doe profile wasn't complete enough. So Oklahoma sent more remains in, hoping to get what they needed in the lab, and in January 2016, they were able to get enough of a profile and made a match to Regina Curtis. The Curtis family was then notified that Regina had been found. Not even, I'm going to repeat myself here, not even two months after she had been reported missing. And now it was nearly 16 years later. Reports announcing this match said that the police were investigating why it was not made or pursued 
sooner. The medical examiner pointed out some things that were working against them, which included not having anyone in the office full-time working on these unidentified remains. They had around 150 unidentified skeletal remains in 2012 when they hired their first full-time in-house employee to work on identification. The first person they hired was a full-time forensic anthropologist. In 2015, they hired a second one. The work they did was invaluable to the state and to the unidentified. By 2016, they had examined and entered the details into NamUs for 113 sets of remains. And 61 missing persons cases, Regina's included, were resolved. Sometimes we talk about how surely a missing person would have been connected to a Doe case by now if they had been found, because years and years and years have gone by. I'm actually guilty of doing it recently in a live stream. But this case shows that that isn't always true. Who knows how many does are sitting in medical examiner's offices that are lacking the resources to do the work to identify them. Now, this explains why the remains were not matched to Regina through forensics, but it still doesn't explain why they weren't matched by paperwork, why the investigators in 2000 didn't see Regina's missing persons report and a Jane Doe matching her description and connect them. Regina did not go missing from out of state or even out of the city. Regina went missing from southwest Oklahoma City and the remains were found in southeast Oklahoma City. This was across town. Both cases were being worked on at the same time, yet still never connected. The only reason given was that there were numerous other missing persons reports that the police were investigating, and I'm not sure what they mean by this. Maybe Regina's case had gotten lost in the shuffle. They're not necessarily offering this as an excuse, but just an explanation, because people were rightfully demanding answers. By the time Regina was identified, they were having to go back 16 years to try to piece together what happened. And as of right now, as of this recording, the murder of Regina Curtis is still unsolved. But if you have any information, you are encouraged to call the Oklahoma City Police Department at 405-231-2121. And now for our last case, the murder of Angela Menahona. She went by Sam, so that is what I will call her for the rest of this episode. Sam was born in Lawton, Oklahoma in July 1971 to Verna Lee and Hector. Like Regina, she came from a big family with seven or eight siblings and lots of cousins too. When her grandmother died in 2007, the obituary lists 40 grandchildren, and 48 great-grandchildren. So yes, a very big family. Sam was Namana, which is more commonly called Comanche, and she was an enrolled member of the Comanche tribe. The Comanche were originally part of the Shoshone tribe in the Northern Plains, but they broke off and moved south to the Southern Plains, and their lands on the Southern Plains were expansive. It included much of present-day Texas, 
a bit of southern Kansas and Colorado, eastern New Mexico, and the western half of Oklahoma. After disease and war decimated their numbers, the Comanche were forced onto a reservation. They are a federally recognized tribe. They are headquartered nine miles north of Lawton, Oklahoma. They have around 17,000 enrolled members today. The Comanche, according to Indian Country Today, are culturally highly social with music playing a large role in their lives. And this was part of the culture that Sam grew up with and embraced. She was proud of her heritage and she loved dancing at powwows. But as often happens when Sam got older and had her kids, Robert and Brianna, she got busy and didn't have as much free time for her dancing. She started working on hobbies that were a little more solitary, like cooking and crossword puzzles and reading. In 1997, Sam married a man named Francisco Rodriguez, so a lot of reporting will use this surname for her. But from what I can tell from her family's interviews with the media, they don't use this last name for her. They use her birth name, Manahona. By 2012, when Sam was 40 years old, her oldest child was an adult and her daughter was turning 17. Sam's life right at that point, was marked with instability, largely due to battles with sobriety. While Sam would live with her mother at times, she would also be gone, staying with others, and bouncing around. Sam was close with her kids, but she didn't have physical custody of them. Of course, her son was an adult, but her daughter lived with family. In January 2012, Sam celebrated her daughter's 17th birthday with her. Later that month, Sam attended a funeral where friends and family saw her. And then after that, the timeline is pretty fuzzy. Though Sam would come and go and maybe not be in constant contact with her family, they became concerned at one point when they hadn't heard from her for a while. So they did, according to an article on the website Last Real Indians, try to contact the police. They wanted to report her missing, but they say they were blown off and basically told that Sam probably just went off with someone, so no missing persons report was ever filed. The rest of Sam's movements from February and March 2012 had to be pieced together by witness statements, like an aunt remembering that she saw her in February at one place and someone else saying, oh, they think they saw her maybe in March. But the last solid lead on Sam's whereabouts was her being at a bar called Glen's Lounge in Lawton, Oklahoma, sometime in March 2012. Then on March 29, 2012, someone driving under a bridge near Fox, Oklahoma, noticed something in the brush off to the side. It turned out to be Sam's body. Her body had been there for at least two weeks undetected. This was about 60 miles from Lawton, where she was last seen. Sam's case was classified as a homicide immediately due to the attempt to conceal her body as well as the cause of death, which was blunt and sharp force injuries. Sam had been brutally attacked. The case has not had a lot of movement, from what I can tell. 
There are reports that a tape of a witness who was interviewed has been since lost by the police. There aren't any leads that have been made public. The only possible hint of something is that Angela had a friend die suspiciously eight months after her, and this friend was Allison Sawyer. Allison's case is odd. In November 2012, Allison burst into the trailer of a total stranger. She was wearing just a t-shirt, underwear, and she was confused and obviously injured. The occupants of the home called 911, of course, and Allison later died in the hospital due to blunt force trauma. While the medical examiner did not determine that this was a homicide, the police were, at the time, investigating it as such. There isn't a lot of information on this, but I do hope it was pursued to see if they had people in common who possibly were responsible for both deaths, or if Allison knew something and maybe someone was trying to keep her quiet. Or maybe this is just a coincidence and it's not much of a lead, but it's something, and it's a reason to re-interview witnesses. Who knows what someone will be more comfortable saying in 2020 that they didn't want to come forward with in 2012. In 2019, a vigil was held in Lawton to bring awareness to Sam's case after seven years. It was the first in a series of vigils to celebrate the lives and bring awareness to the cases of 13 Comanche women who were on the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's List. And if you have any information regarding the murder of Angela Mainahona, you are encouraged to contact the Oklahoma City Crime Stoppers at 405-235-7300. All of the contact numbers in this episode will be in the show notes. And a reminder that all ad money from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women episodes always goes to charity. This episode's revenue will be donated to the Native Alliance Against Violence, Oklahoma's Tribal Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Coalition, which is located in Norman, Oklahoma. To join me in making a donation, go to oknaav.org. Okay, 